Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Camille White. Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease can start 10 years before your first sign. So we're seeing the middle of the disease. We're not seeing the beginning of the disease. We're seeing the beginning clinically, but brain-wise, that disease has already been there and progressing, and now your brain has just been unable to compensate with those neurochemical messengers that are sent back and forth between the nerve cells. In this episode, we interview Dr. Jerome Lisk, an African-American dual board certified neurologist with a subspecialty in movement disorders. Dr. Lisk educates us about common misconceptions in neurology, discusses systemic issues related to accessibility, and new medical tests being developed to diagnose patients earlier. Welcome back to another episode of Distrust and Disparities. We are excited to be back. This week, we are joined by Dr. Jerome Lisk, who is a dual board certified neurologist with a subspecialty in movement disorders. We are looking forward to our conversation and discussion and also learning more about his role and how he addresses health disparities in his field. And neurology lags drastically behind other specialties in attracting Black medical students. Approximately 8% of medical students in 2019 in the U.S. were Black, and approximately only 3% of the neurology workforce is made up of Black neurologists. The field is majority white men, and that does not reflect the communities that we serve. We know for a fact that diversity amongst neurologists and other fields is important for delivering optimal health care. Research has shown that increasing minority representation among healthcare workers can lead to better outcomes for minority patients and overall everyone in general because it increases factors such as cultural competency. And additionally, research also shows that Black patients have poor access to neurological care and worse neurological outcomes across subspecialties, including stroke, epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, dementia, headaches, and other neurological conditions. So let's jump into our discussion with Dr. Jerome Lisk. To start off the conversation, we wanted to start off with an icebreaker. We wanted to ask you about your first encounter with a medical injustice or health disparity. It could be something you or someone close to you experienced or something you've read about that really stuck with you. Well, thanks for having me. Um, glad to be on your podcast. And that is a great question. So um, as far I think that my first experience with health disparities is probably just kind of growing up in Inglewood, California, where 
you know, you don't really necessarily realize it because people kind of, you know, when you're growing up, your family, whatnot, we're not really, my family really didn't go to the doctor unless you kind of had to, something was wrong mm-hmm. and you weren't really, there wasn't, um, you know, going to the doctor, there wasn't that necessary education and whatnot about what to do for certain things as far as prevention. So I guess my first, um, you know, so we were, I was kind of in in a silo uh, where you didn't really go, you're younger, you don't really go to the doctor very much. And so you don't really have that experiences until you get older. And then when I became a doctor, um, actually at medical school, going into certain clinics, you could see that a lot of times I felt the white doctors probably didn't spend as much time with the patients when you were in a clinic where they're really more like minorities. And then you do another rotation in medical school. When you go to another uh, city or neighborhood nearby where it's uh, a predominantly white community, and then, you know, it seems like the facilities are nicer, you know, the, the nurses and the front staff are more interactive and, and and not as rushed and so just quick with responses. You know, okay, fill this out, sit here. <laughs> you know, more like, hey, how you doing? With smiles, and so you kind of see that before you even see the doctor. You see that you know you hit the door and the atmosphere is probably not as welcoming and as as um, as warm, and then you're kind of in and out, and you kind of feel as if you know you just kind of told what to do, and that was it. So my my, my first was just observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have a similar experience. I started um, doing travel nursing, um, and just seeing the differences between um, an urban hospital, working in a rural environment, and then also working in like a wealthy neighborhood in Connecticut, the bedside manner is completely different um, in how they speak to patients and things like that. Right. Setting staff expectations. Setting staff Mm -hmm. expectations. Staff expectations are set in uh, nicer clinics are areas where it's more predominant, where there's, there's the social, it's a upper middle class or middle class neighborhood. So the social economic differences in those neighborhoods in the clinics, um, I think the staff has set certain expectations of how they behave and how they cater to patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, people are coming to be cared for. It should be the same across the board. It's- crazy how the differences are very stark contrast and we'll move on we just want to talk about um your career and as we mentioned you're a dual board certified neurologist and your subspecialty is in movement disorders and can you explain to our audience um what the field of neurology is and Um, I know when I think of movement disorders, the first disorder that comes to mind is Parkinson's disease. But could you also tell us um, what other conditions are classified under movement disorders? 
Yeah, so that's great. So let me start off first by saying how you do, how you become a neurologist. You go to medical school, right? You do rotations. The majority, those statistics you mentioned, the reason that is usually is because the majority of medical schools don't require medical students to even go through a neurology rotation. Wow. So, yeah, so you could go through medical school and never even uh, interact with uh, when you interact with neurologists, but you'll never, you could never be on a neurology rotation. Mm. That's the first thing. So say you're lucky enough to have one of these rotations, or let's say you just figured you just want to be a neurologist. You had no exposure. Then you have to, you graduate, you go through something called a match where you apply different programs. You get, you know, your that program matches you uh, high and you match that uh, program high, then you match each other. And then you uh, will go into the neurology uh, residency program. So the first year is going to be an internal medicine or transitional year. And then the next, the next three years is basically your neurology residency. So neurology is a study of the brain, the spinal cord, and all the nerves that come out of the spinal cord. Okay. So the central nervous system is the brain and spinal cord. And when nerves come out of the spinal cord, that's called the peripheral nervous system. So these are big diseases like Alzheimer's disease. Um, also seizures. We know people have epilepsy. Mm-hmm. People have headaches, things of that sort. Now, the heart has an electrical system. The bladder has an electrical system. So technically, if we were talking about every nerve that went to every organ, we would be every doctor, right? We'd be a GI doctor and a cardiologist. So we have to kind of separate it a little bit to the diseases that originate from the nervous system. And so that'd be the difference there. And then you say, okay, well, I don't want to just see every neurological disease. When I was in neurology residency, I liked stroke or I liked headache or epilepsy or ALS or Parkinson's. So then you choose what they call a fellowship. So after you graduate from your residency, then you get to choose to do a one or two year fellowship. And that fellowship could consist of uh, just straight clinical, or you could do a one-year clinical and one-year research, or you could just do one year of clinical. Uh, and so that comprises of you just going to the clinic and seeing just those type of patients all the time, you know. And so that's how neurologists will become subspecialists in different fields. And so movement disorders, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, restless legs, the one thing people think is that all Parkinson disease is just Parkinson disease. So Parkinson disorders, Parkinsonism, and Parkinson syndromes are all synonymous, and that's an umbrella term. Okay, and so under that umbrella, you have Parkinson disease, you have Lewy body dementia, you have multiple system atrophy, you have cortical basilar degeneration progressive supranuclear palsy, and other Parkinson disorders. So Parkinson disease is just one of many Parkinson disorders in a family of disorders. Mm. And so restless legs, chorea, and there's a, you know, hemifacial spasm, tardive dyskinesia you see on TV, those medications used for tardive dyskinesia, those are all movement disorders. Are there any sort of myths or misconceptions about neurology or even about the movement disorders you talk about? I would even say at least 
for us and what you just talked about and told us, not understanding the whole umbrella term that is Parkinson's. But can you speak to any myths or common misconceptions? Well, the first misconception is that people think is when I've arrived told someone I, early in my career, I would, you know, you'd be at a restaurant or someplace or at a social gathering. You say, I'm a neurologist. And immediately someone's eyes lights up and says, oh, wow, you operate. I'm like, no, I'm not a neurosurgeon. I'm a neurologist. And <laughs> <laughs> think you're cutting into someone's brain. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, you know I, I kind of mess with the neurosurgeons sometimes. I love them. You know, they're, 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 they're okay. It's, I, I make little jokes. I say, you know, we think with our brains, neurosurgeons use their hands, you know, um, <laughs> you know, they're, you know, they're mechanics. We are the cognitive specialty. We kind of <laughs> diagnose things for them and give it to them on a silver platter. It's a, stuff like that. But so, so one misconception is that people don't know the difference between neurologist and neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And when you're in the hospital, the nurses just say neuro called neuro. Um. And then, yes. the, the, then they'll call they'll call us instead of neurosurgery. They'll call neurosurgery instead of neurology. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but people really don't know what neurologists do. And when you say movement disorder specialist, that's a word where patients say, "Okay, well, what is that?" And that's when that's basically the study of abnormal any disease that causes abnormal movement. So too much movement or too little movement. Mm-hmm. And the thing that the misconception, just like with Parkinson's disease, that there's all these Parkinson disorders and Parkinson's disease is one of them. The problem is when they was first discovered Parkinsonism, uh, you know, by James Parkinson's discovered it in 1817, Shaking Palsy essay, uh, he saw six patients walking down the street and described these patients. Well, they thought that was it. There was only one disorder. But then as time went on, we start discovering there's many other different types of Parkinson disorders. So what you see on TV, the media does a kind of a disservice to that because the only thing they'll put up, they'll talk about Muhammad Ali, Michael J. Fox, but mm-hmm. they won't talk about the owner, the owner or previous owner of the Washington Wizards. His father had multiple system atrophy, which is a Parkinson disorder. Mm-hmm. Patients will ask me frequently, well, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Once again, dementia is an umbrella term. It's a family. Alzheimer's is just one type of dementia. You have, once again, Lewy body dementia, which shares both categories of a Parkinson disorder and dementia disorder. Then you have dementia from B12 deficiency that everyone usually will call Alzheimer's disease because primary care doctors frequently may not check a B12 level. And if it's below 300, it's B12 deficiency. But if it's between three and 400, you have to order something called a methylmalonic acid and homocysteine, which is a fasting lab, to make sure they don't have occult B12 deficiency, because 10% of people will have that. So then you have vascular dementia, right, from multiple strokes and et cetera. And then you have frontal temporal dementia, right? Then you have a dementia called cerebral amyloid angiopathy, where people have amyloid plaques in the brain and they have microbleeds. And those bleeds over time cause dementia. And most times they don't feel them. They can have 50 or 50 or 20 of these things and never have felt a bleed until they have a big enough one where they feel it. So there's many different types of dementia that exist. Normal pressure hydrocephalus, that could be dementia too. And it could show up, it could 
have features of Parkinsonism. So knowing that there's umbrella terms and there's many disorders that fit under them, those are the two big misconceptions is Parkinson disease is the only uh, Parkinson disorder and Alzheimer's is the only type of dementia. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up and broke that down because even I get confused and wouldn't know this. So I'm glad that our audience is learning these, learning this as well. And we wanted to ask, um, what does your day-to-day look like in your practice as you're um, seeing patients and things like that? If you could talk to us about that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, get, you know, I try to get there about half an hour early to go through my inbox. My medical assistant will fill prescriptions. And so anything that she can't do, she'll send to me answer questions, looking at, you know, MRI reports. And as a neurologist, you, you connect with the imaging center and you get to know these neuroradiologists and you kind of want to look at all your MRIs, all your MRIs. After a few years of being with the same person, you get to know their style. Then you kind of know kind of which ones you really need to pull up. So do that first. Nine o'clock I start. Patients, follow-up patients are about 15 or 30 minutes, depending on how much time they we think they need or how complicated we think they are. And then new patients are always an hour. And so we try to put, you know, uh, new patients in the morning and follow-ups in the afternoon. Occasionally I have, I program deep brain stimulators. So deep brain stimulation is where an electrode is placed in the brain. And that electrode will stimulate certain parts of the brain to reduce the symptoms of Parkinson's disease and a different part of the brain for essential tremor. Now they've used this for epilepsy and obsessive compulsive disorder also, but me, I program uh, deep brain stimulators for Parkinson's disease and essential tremor. And patients, there's another misconception. Patients will think when I say deep brain stimulator surgery that you're going to cut their brain open, you know, fillet them open, you know, and it's going to be an hour, you know, like you see on TV. This is like stereotactic. Stereotactic is like similar to when they used to cut people open to cake out a gallbladder, but now they make, they use the the scopes. Well, this is kind of like that, but they make a little tiny hole and it's about the size of a nickel in the skull, and they do a lot of the computer planning and the whole surgery on a computer. And we, we, use, we use Brain Lab. And so when you come in, everything's done. They put a protractor on the head. There's a holder there. It's pointed at the target. The computer already gives you the XYZ coordinates. And then when a neurosurgeon sets it up, he steps back and does nothing just about, but just watch. He either comes around and, re- and operates the remote, or if there's a neurologist, the neurologist is actually doing the surgery and operating the remote by lowering that electrode down to the brain, looking at the nerve cell sound and waveforms on a laptop. And we get down to the target, we wake the patient up, and we basically can um, test them. Now, I used to go in the OR and do that. That's called you just kind of monitoring the neurophysiology, or we call microelectro recording. So I don't do that in the office. We're not opening people up there. But I program these patients about a month after they have surgery. Um, also, I give botulinum toxin 
for cervical dystonia, which is an abnormal muscle contraction that can hold your neck in a certain posture. It could be painful or painless. It could cause deviation of the head. And so we'll do that hemifacial spasm where the one side of the face will spasm because it's a compressed nerve that's coming to the face that controls your facial expression. That nerve's being compressed by a blood vessel usually. So we'll do that. Um, sometimes there's something called blethoral spasm where people shut their eyes like this. They're constantly closing. You may see some people that are kind of close their eyes kind of tight or they blink, blink more frequently. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a disorder with those muscles around the eye. That muscle around the eye is called obicularis oculi, and it's, it's, it's tasked with closing your eyes. That's all it does. And the brain will send a signal. Like dystonia is where the brain sends a signal to the muscle, but it's like the telephone game where the muscle, uh, where the, the message going up is not the message that was supposed to come down. And so the muscle will contract when it's not supposed to contract, and we get botulinum toxin for that as well. And so I stop about 5 p.m. And Friday I use for administrative days and research. And I also teach residents because I'm a, a, a assistant professor at University of Texas, North Dallas. And so we have residents in the hospital. I'm on call. And sometimes they come by the office. And also research assistants will come by the office to observe. Wow. That sounds like a busy week. We just wanted to talk about like all the things that you do and um, all like the different type of neurological disorders that you see. Yeah, seems like a really, really busy day. Have you checked out our website? There you can find all of our episodes and show notes. You can even listen directly on the site and catch up on any previous episode you may have missed. You can read our bios and see what we're up to. Also, we made it even easier to contact us. Just fill out the form on our homepage and click submit. We invite you to recommend guests and topics we should feature. So what are you waiting for? Go check us out at distrustanddisparities.com. And we wanted to segue and just talk about some of the disparities in the field. And like we said before, currently in the U.S., there is a shortage of neurologists. The number of patients that need to see a neurologist far exceeds the number of available neurologists. And then when we take a deeper look, research shows that Black and Hispanic um, people are less likely to see a neurologist in the office or as an outpatient compared to white people in the U.S. And Black people with neurological conditions such as Parkinson's disease or stroke um, were more likely to be cared for in the hospital emergency department and had more hospital stays compared to white individuals. And could you elaborate on this disparity um, of lack of access and or utilization? Yeah, and that's a lot to unpack because it's multifactorial. Mm-hmm. Um you know, people could say, well, it's just that, uh, you know, there's there, there's health literacy, number one. Mm-hmm. And so True. getting exposed, you know, you're at home, you're watching TV, you don't really have a way to for information to freely flow to you about, there's not commercials about health tips and to keep this type of thing on your mind. So health literacy is one thing. So people are learning about checking my blood pressure every day. You know, instead of thinking, well, my blood pressure was fine at the doctor's office two months ago, so it's going to be fine every day. 
<laughs> you know? And they don't realize their body is changing, right? So that's one thing. Then we have social economic factors where, you know, you may have to, you may not have, you know, transportation to get to your primary care doctor may send you to a specialist, say, I'm in Dallas, so UT Southwestern, and you may live in part of town where you may have to catch two or three buses to get to that appointment. And you may not have childcare. So these social economic issues uh, where you, that, you know, we've had institutional racism in the United States that has put African-Americans in a lower social class. And we could, you could talk about this for an hour going all the way back from the civil war, how you just can't say, Hey, uh, we're just going to let you, you guys are just free. Okay. Bye. You guys are free. Well, no housing, you know, no, there weren't like, people were going to just start hiring ex-slaves. And so you had this generational problem where, um, you know, land was taken, et cetera, and people are starting from ground zero economically and having to build up. And, you know, you basically create, you're creating, you know, uh, large pockets of, of, of poor people within a certain uh, race. And so those, so then they all, then African Americans will then have more social economic factors in preventing them from accessing care than other other racial groups. A lot of times when patients they see their PCP and they give them a referral to go see a specialist because I had this issue with where I work at. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a referral to see a specialist, so then I'm helping them to call. We're waiting on hold for sometimes up to like 30 minutes, and then we have the referral, and then they're like, "No, you need to get a new referral to have them put the specific doctor that you want to see." We go we get that we call like another place and then they tell us like the wait is like months out in advance and sometimes people get deterred like people are calling on their break they're calling in between so something as simple as that process can make it harder and and it all depends on like your insurance and this is dealing with um Mm -hmm. medicaid in this situation so there's like an extreme backlog and Mm -hmm. you know who you're talking to on the phone they're like you need to call this who gave you this number back and forth and participants are you know people that i work with they're very turned off like you know it makes them anxious they don't like that feeling so that's you know one big factor of you know that can lead to why so many people aren't seeing a specialist. Yeah. And some of the key factors you brought up is uh, when you push someone out that far, uh, people may have difficulty getting off of work, yeah. like the child yeah. care we mentioned. And you mentioned a great thing, insurance. Insurance prices have gone up significantly. I remember when I was able to pay for insurance, uh, you know, I was a single parent. So for my kid and myself, I was able to pay about $300 a month. Now you're paying $1,500 a month. Yeah, they got rid of that plan. They got rid of that plan back in 2007. It was like $300 for an adult and their dependent child? Yeah, yeah. That was was way back, way back in 2006, 2007. And so now it's like $1,500 if you want to do something like that. So, and then you bring a good point, authorizations. Insurance companies frequently will pick uh, neurologists. They may pick a general neurologist 
And they'll send everything that general neurologist because they know he'll, he sees patients fast. He sees high volume. And many times, you know, you have doctors that are not, they're not examining patients and they're not, they're saying, okay, we're going to take care of this one thing. It's all we're going to take care about. I'm talking about anything else, but some of those other things the patient wants to talk about can actually be affecting or lead you to the diagnosis of what they're there for. And in medical school, they tell you 80% of the diagnosis comes from the history. And I've seen plenty of, of patients come to me and they say, wow, I'm doing a neurological exam. They say, wow, this is the first time I've done this. And they've seen like two neurologists in the past. And, and so it's obvious the neurologist did not examine them and spent, and they'll, they'll say, yeah, I just had me walk down the hall and said I had Parkinson's. Wow. That's insane because it's like a full exam is required to, like you said, understand completely. And I love that whole thing of you're being taught that 80% is of the history of what yeah. you're being told. And if you're not listening to your patient, how are you going to have a well-rounded, complete picture of what's going on with them? And that unfortunately, there are doctors who are operating in a way of like, you're just getting in as many people as possible and you're just checking yes. a box for these insurance companies and going, okay, now reimburse me. I saw this person and I did, you know, my job, but you didn't do a great job. You just did something right. to just barely get by. Right. And that could discourage patients from coming back because mm -hmm. the lack of expertise of the person, of the neurologist you're seeing, let's say they're just a general neurologist and they could be a great general neurologist I've seen great general neurologists do movement, treat movement disorders sometimes just as good as a movement disorder specialist. But let's say you get someone that doesn't have that subspecialty ex, uh, uh, expertise. They may say, you know, don't worry about it. It's nothing. So many times, I think every neurologist will say this. I say almost half the patients that will come to us will say, I told my primary care I was having memory problems. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, well, mm -hmm. you know, well, you're getting older. Or they say we have a tremor and they say, don't worry about the tremor. And it may be anywhere from three to six years before a patient will actually see a subspecialist that they need to see. That All that time loss. Brain is time when it comes to dementia. Now, the, the, the dementia is rapidly progressing and you have medications that can slow it down. And you've lost that that extra time of independence. You have a Parkinson disorder. You can improve the quality of life of people, but sometimes it's it's people wait until it's obvious before treatment is sought, and that could be the fault of the patient or the doctor. Mm -hmm. And when and, and when they when they also when they uh, if you're seeing thirty patients a day as a neurologist or twenty, say say twenty five to thirty, you're not examining those patients. That's one sign. You just look and see how many people, how many patients someone sees in a day. And if they're seeing really large volume, you know they're not examining those people. If you are enjoying this episode, you should consider buying us a coffee. Yes, a coffee. That small gesture will help us continue to create quality episodes and content. Click the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes or check out our website at distrustanddisparities.com. What are some symptoms that people should look out for? Because I want to talk to 
um, just like cultural beliefs about aging and things like that. Some people may think, oh, this is just a normal part of aging. You know, my grandma, my mom, she's just forgetting things. So don't worry about it. You know, she's just a little shaky, but th- that's normal. But what are some signs and some early signs and symptoms that people should look out for and say if the doctor is also telling them, oh, um, that's normal, that's normal, but they want to go a step further and just make sure and they want to advocate for themselves to get a neurologist or get further testing. Can you just um, speak to that? Yeah, that is a great, great question. Jeez. And uh, it, it, also, it also hits on Camille's question previously about misconceptions, too. So there's a misconception that uh, everybody that gets older just, you know, is going to have bad short term memory. And if you're having memory loss, it's because you're getting old, right? But as our population gets older and older, now we're realizing that's probably not the case. So for dementia, it's insidious. Parkinson's starts off very little insidious. I'll start with Parkinson's first. So Parkinson's disorders, any Parkinson's disorder, usually starts off the hallmark is slowness of movement. So I have wives tell me, well, my husband used to always walk faster than me. And now I'm walking right next to him. And now I'm walking in front of him. He's walking behind me. That's a sign. Unless you have a hip, a knee, some other mechanical problem, low back pain. If you're not having any other things wrong with you and you see your 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 loved one taking longer to get dressed, taking longer to do the activities of daily living, brushing their teeth, doing things like that. You're waiting for them for five minutes. Now you're waiting for for 20 minutes to get ready. That could be a sign that there is a possible Parkinson disorder uh, occurring. People, the misconception that Camille mentioned before with medicine in, in Parkinson disorders is that every Parkinson disorder has to have a tremor. In order to have Parkinson's disease, you have to have a tremor. There's three types of clinical presentations for Parkinson's disease. You have tremor dominant, where it starts off as a tremor. You have no tremor, and you hardly never have. You have very slight or no tremor ever. And that is basically akinetic rigid. And then there's a mixture. You have tremor and you're slow and stiff. So you need two out of three to diagnose Parkinson's disease. Tremor, rigidity, and bradykinesia the bradykinesia means slowness of movement, and that is the hallmark. We go to dementia. Dementia is harder because it starts off with people doing those common things, losing your keys, forgetting appointments, forgetting names of people that you should know. That starts to happen at a higher frequency. Now, it's important to know that there are two neuropathologists, husband and wife team named Brock and Brock, who have done thousands of brain autopsies and stage the pathological, has done the pathological staging for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and even Lewy body dementia. And what they found is that Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease can start 10 years before your first sign. Some people may even think 20 years because with Parkinson's disease, you can act out your dreams and then 10, say 20 years 
are 10 years later, you develop Parkinson's disease. 70, 80% of those people develop Parkinson's disease. 60 to 60, 80% of them do. So we're seeing the middle of the disease. We're not seeing the beginning of the disease. We're seeing the beginning clinically, but brain-wise, that disease has already been there and progressing. And now your brain has just been unable to compensate with those neurochemical messengers that are sent back and forth between the nerve cells. Is there research? Are there now things that people are hoping in a certain amount of time, hopefully in the near future, but you never know of being able to look at the brain and see those early, early signs that aren't showing up as actual physical symptoms, but are then showing up on the brain and like, where are we in that stage to be able to have people start doing those tests? And like, you know, the recommendation of when you hit 35 or 40 or whatever, and you have a family history, blah, 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 maybe you step it up earlier. Like, are those tests being developed and are they actually being utilized hopefully when, when, and if they are developed? That's the dream. And you hit another great point. I love you guys. I love your questions today, guys. You're really hit, hitting on. You're hitting on all cylinders. You know, you get you guys get prepared today. Yes, <laughs> so, we wanted so, to pick your brain. Yes, here today. I'm at the bar. I'm at the bar. You guys take you to one of these medical conferences and have you question some of the doctors there. So, so, so basically, what she's talking about are biomarkers. Okay. Biomarkers, there, now there's different type of biomarkers. Biomarkers for the blood. You can use biomarkers that come from the, spon- the cerebral spinal fluid. Or biomarkers that come from imaging, like you know, like a uh, imaging, like a MRI, but or like a nuclear medicine imaging called a, a dopamine transporter imaging, which is a nuclear medicine test. So what is a biomarker? A biomarker is going to be a, some type of substance that you find in the blood, spinal fluid, or that you could see on an imaging study that lets you know there's a disease there before clinical symptoms occur, okay? And that this person may be at risk. So we know that there's symptoms that occur in Parkinson's disease before physically you have symptoms. So I designed a clinical trial with GE Healthcare that looked at you have REM sleep behavior disorder, which we know happens 10, 20 years. We know decrease in smell can happen seven years or more before Parkinson's disease. And it also, it also occurs with Alzheimer's. So, you know, it could happen in both. And then we have constipation. So we can't screen, we can't, you know, draw blood from everybody that's constipated or everybody that's, you know, has decreased sense of smell. Right. Mm. But when you look at a number, you have a questionnaire that you may be able to ask people or you have one thing such as REM sleep behavior disorder where people act out their dreams when they're asleep. Then you could use that and say, I'm going to take and this has been done by a friend of mine, Mayo Clinic. You take all those patients that act out their dreams in their sleep. And you you take they've done something called dopamine transporter imaging that looks at these, these reuptake channels that once the dopamine comes out the nerve cell, it needs to come back in. Whatever's not used comes back in the nerve cell. But those reuptake channels disappear with these with Parkinson's disease. 
and other Parkinson disorders. So dopamine transporter imaging can tell you if you have any of these Parkinson disorders. It does not diagnose Parkinson disease, but now we have something where we could say, oh, look, you know, um, we can actually do this and see which people may develop Parkinson disease. We could draw blood. There's a new blood test called PTAL217, Eli Lilly. And another company called OzPath in San Diego or San Francisco, there in California, has developed this blood test that has a very high sensitivity for di- diagnosing Alzheimer's disease through the blood. And that's already been uh, commercialized March 2022, but the insurance companies. Yeah. 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 So they're charging $500, charging $500 for this test and it's not even commercially available with quest. I looked it up just yesterday, not commercially available with a lot of labs because there's these barriers. So hopefully with Eli Lilly coming out with this, it'll be um, in other, other organizations may also come, you know, come out with this test as well. We'll have this where we can actually start imaging patients uh, that have certain family histories mm-hmm. or other type of factors, decreases of smell and other things, and, and, and combine these biomarkers so that we can find those people that may develop it and actually do preventative trials. Because there's been no preventative trials because with Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, by the time you get clinical signs, You've already lost more than fifty percent of those neurons producing that neuro that that dopamine or acetylcholine. So that's damage control. My theory is that you need at least to intervene before you before thirty percent of the cell population has died, and because now you're protecting something, you know now you're doing neuroprotection, and we haven't found what that percentage is, but we you know hopefully we will. Yeah, I I definitely believe, yeah, prevention is the way to go and making it more accessible for everyone, like the same way you see your PCP every year, um, adding in um, certain neurological tests, um, especially if it runs in your family or things like that, so that it can be diagnosed early and we can start putting those interventions in place. So hopefully in the Things are getting approved, you said, uh, 2022. So hopefully it'll become more accessible to everyone. So I'm glad you're on the podcast to talk about this. Yeah. Also, AI is going to really push things forward because there's like um, IBM Watson. There's other AI uh, websites where uh, researchers have put in, uh, say, they put in something into the AI deep learning to say, find me all the drugs that could possibly work with this, you know, protein or, you know, give me a list of possible drugs. And so the AI could search thousands and thousands of medications and give you medications that may have uh, applications with certain diseases. And it could also screen thousands of thousands of different proteins and protein structures and probably really help us find biomarkers a lot faster. This concludes part one of our conversation with Dr. Lisk. Please subscribe and stay tuned for part two, coming August 18th. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at DistrustPod. Thank you.